Well, again, good morning and, and welcome to Christ Community Church. Uh, as Andrew said, my name is Nathan. Uh, I serve primarily over at our Olathe campus, uh, but also across all campuses alongside Tim. And uh, we spend a lot of time together. I, I think very highly of Tim um, and the work that uh, together you guys uh, get to be a part of here here in the space. Uh, it, it is fun being here. Uh, it's my first time part of this, this uh, community here, the Shawnee campus, and so it's, it's, it's really a delight. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard for me to believe um, that it's been almost a year since we sent out uh, so many of you to come and be a part of, of starting this place. Um, and it's, it's really exciting. I know Tim is enjoying uh, being back at Olathe today, so we just kind of swapped places. Um, he definitely got the short end of the stick because he's about to yeah, start his third uh, sermon uh, today. And I'm, I'm like, I'm rested. I am ready to go. So uh, watch out. It could be, could be a little scary. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's good, to be, good to be here with, with you. Um, for those, of you, for, for those of you particularly who came from the Olathe campus, I see a lot of you here. I just want to say, and I, I can't say this enough, just how much we miss you. Uh, we love you guys. Uh, we are excited about what's happening here. Um, but we, yeah, we, we miss you. Um, I'm looking around. Most of you, I guess, uh, is what I probably mean to say. But we, we, do, we, do, we do miss you guys, uh, without a doubt. Um, but God is, God is doing something here, and that, that's exciting that you get to be a part of that. In fact, I, uh, somebody emailed me just this, this past week a new study that once again confirms the fact that it is new churches, young, young churches, um, that reach the lost, um, hands down, uh, more effectively than, than established communities. And so uh, I know it gets, it gets frustrating probably at times. At times it's probably really difficult, maybe even discouraging, you know, being almost a year in, uh, and, and yet... God is up to something, uh, and you who are part, I mean, I'm speaking from someone who's, who started a campus and, and realized some of the difficulties there, uh, you, you are going to get to see God show up in ways um, that so many people just miss uh, by going out in faith and, and doing something, frankly, hard uh, and brave uh, together. And so thanks, thanks for being that, for being that, that way, and, and for being here uh, in this space. And for those of you who didn't come from another Christ community campus, um, the reason this church exists is because of the people sitting around you. Uh, who stepped out uh, and wanted to see a community in this place. Uh, and things, things in Olathe are good. Again, we miss you, and everybody sends their, their love uh, and their greetings. But I even want to encourage you with this. For those of you who left from Olathe, uh, your impact is, is really double, because not only are you uh, part of this community establishing a new church in this place, uh, but your, your seats have already been filled in Olathe uh, as we continue to grow. I mean, that, that area of Olathe is just growing uh, super fast, right? There's new homes and new neighborhoods in every direction. Uh, and so I mean, I mean that, that you, not only are you, do you have an impact here, uh, but you have an ongoing impact in Olathe um, because somebody else is sitting in your seat uh, this morning worshiping you uh, that wouldn't have had room uh, last year um, if we had stayed the same. So thanks, thanks for doing that. All right, well, let's, let's, let's jump into um, our time together this morning. Well, it, it's, uh, it's Christmas time, right? Um, probably noticed that. And it feels like it comes like Maybe just a little bit too often for me, I guess. I mean, I love, I love Christmas, but it, it gets, well, you know, whatever. Um, but, but one of my favorite things to do this time of year, has anybody here ever uh, Googled awkward Christmas photos? You really probably shouldn't. Um, but let me, let, me sh- let me show you a few uh, great, some of my favorites, okay? Um, I mean, it just kind of makes me feel better about myself, right? I mean, how, how, can, you, how can you resist? Uh, here, here's another, another set. Um, you know, part of me feels a little bit bad making fun of people, and especially in church. Um, but they're, they're begging for it, aren't they? I mean, how, how can you not? Okay, one, one more, one more. Yep, that might be, that might be the winner. Um, 
I mean, what, what are they thinking, right? Why? Uh, Kelly and I, we actually receive in our very own mailbox an awkward uh, Christmas family photo of our very own. It's, it's, uh, it's delightful. It actually may be one of my favorite aspects of the holiday. It happened this past week. You know, Kelly, I came over from work. She's like, it, it arrived, you know, and I pull it out, and it's, it's you know, true to form, right? Every single year. I wish I, would, I could show you that one. It feels a little bit like if you actually know the people. Um, actually, just Kelly said I couldn't, so... Um, <laughs> She clearly loves Jesus a whole lot more than I do. Um, but I, I've been part of the problem, too. Okay, so I've got some awkward photos. Uh, maybe not quite as much of a winner, but I'm certainly a child of the 80s. Uh, here's one more, a family wedding. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's, that's me and my clan. So that, that works. But, uh, but what, it, what is it about Christmas uh, that tends to bring out, like, just the weirdest parts of who we all are, um, and, and the weirdest people, like even, even within our own, our own families, right? Uh, all, the, all the skeletons that you've been hiding away in your closet the other 11 months, all of a sudden in December, they're, they're coming around, right, asking for eggnog. It just, it happens, and, or, you know, the Uncle Eddie's, the aunt that nobody talks about, the sibling that you really wish hadn't made it in, right? Every family's got them. If you don't know who they are, it's probably you, right? You know that, or, or, or me, it could be, right? Um, and the worst, the worst part about it is they're, they're part of us, right? They're family. And family history matters, right? Whether it's, whether it's genetics or, or simply a matter of the way you were raised and your parents were raised and their parents, we are somehow this odd collection of all the people who have gone before us. And it's not always funny. In one way or another, we all come from broken families. Now, they didn't, they didn't have awkward Christmas photos way, way back then, uh, partially because Christmas hadn't really been invented yet and neither had photos, but they had their own equivalent. They kept track of genealogies, these long lists of, of names, of, of family trees. I mean, like an ancient photo album uh, where a picture really would be worth a thousand words, these lists gave them a sense of who they were. It, it, it told them their identity. And so it, it makes sense that the Gospel of Matthew begins with the most awkward family photo of all. I mean, you think you have skeletons in your closet. You couldn't find a more sordid family tree on Game of Thrones. And this is, this is Jesus we're talking about. Matthew begins with the family history of the Christ. And what a weird way to start a book. Right? I mean, he's writing because he wants other people to, to follow Jesus, to give their lives to Jesus. You know, you think maybe like start with something like huge, a miracle or, or something. He starts with this, this endless list of names. Why? Two reasons. One's, one's more obvious, the other's more subtle, but both are absolutely what Matthew is doing as he writes down these names. First, the obvious one is he, he wants us to see that Jesus is king. His rights to this throne as, as Messiah. But second, and, and we so quickly overlook it, and yet Matthew is going out of his way to show us that this family history, Jesus's, it's a mess. 
Jesus is king, but it is of one ugly kingdom. I mean, who's, who's in this family photo with him? Like, like if you zoom in like, and pan around on these, these different faces, these different names, I mean, you see a bunch of nobodies. You, can see, you see losers, frankly, rejects. You see people who just wouldn't belong culturally, foreigners, immigrants, refugees. You see a whole lot of sinners, prostitutes, murderers. There's kind of like a, a dictator in there. Some really messed up people. All squeezing in for a selfie with Jesus. It's people who don't belong. Frankly, it's people like you and, and me. Jesus is king of one ugly kingdom. But he's making us beautiful. And this morning we're continuing in this, this series. We've, we've called it For All People. Reminding ourselves and celebrating the fact that, that our God is for everyone. Uh, that, that our God wants a really big family from all people. And so we started at the, the beginning of the story in Genesis and went to the end of the story in Revelation. And now these last couple of weeks we've been in Matthew, right, as we've gotten more fully into Advent, to see right there at the center that this is who our God is. And this will, this will set us on, on a trajectory for, for months together uh, in the, the Gospel of, of Matthew. We're going to be here forever in, in Matthew, just, just for you know. Um, it's, it's where we're headed. So that, that's, that's what we're doing with, with this series, and we're going to begin this morning where Matthew begins. And I know if you were here last week, Tim began, right, with the, the story of the virgin birth. He and I kind of swapped things around um, to, to be able to, to, to do this and make this work. Um, I think really he just didn't want to preach the genealogy passage, so uh, you're stuck with me on that. Um, but we're going we're to begin there, and we're going to read together uh, this most boring tedious, seemingly random, useless to our minds, right, piece of scripture, um, and we're going to see that it's more. So why don't you, why don't you stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word? I know you're excited after I said it like that, right, this really terrible, boring thing that we often discard, right? It's, it's the part that we skip over, um, but we're not going to skip it today. Uh, so our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation, the exile, to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, listen, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
So, Matthew tells us, all the generations from Abraham to, to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Jesus is king of one ugly kingdom. Now, just to set the stage for us, okay, Matthew is writing this gospel about 20 or 30 years after the resurrection. And so this means for the events that follow in this story, these 28 chapters, Matthew was either an eyewitness or he had a connection, right, with the eyewitnesses. He could talk to others. Regardless, there are people still alive as Matthew's writing that can either confirm or deny these events, okay? And so you may not believe the story, but at the very least, Matthew is attempting to root it in real, actual history, right? And, and Matthew, as the author of this gospel, he was one of the disciples, sort of part of the inner 12 uh, of Jesus' sort of core group, right? We followed him around for those, those three years. And Matthew was a tax collector, which in that day, you couldn't, you couldn't get much worse than a tax collector. And so Matthew knows intimately how ugly this kingdom gets, frankly. And so, and so he begins off can I kind of look at this first part, this, this idea of him being king? And really, it centers on, upon verse, verse 1 and verse 17. So we'll start on the bookends, and then for the second point, we'll go into the, the center here. Because what's, what's essential in this long list of names that seems so random and disjointed to us is that Jesus has every right to be king, to be the, the Messiah, that he's in this, this, this line. And it's important. Matthew has to start there because Jesus didn't look like a king, right? He's, he's a humble peasant. He was crucified as a revolutionary. He had nothing about him to convince people that he was a king. And so Matthew, is, he's, he wants to show us. And, and so he does. Verse, verse 1, right? It says, the book of the genealogy or of the family history of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is kind of the title of, of this section. So two things there, right? He says, son of Abraham, first of all. Uh, so what, what he's saying is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises made 2,000 years before this, right? We looked at Abraham's story, Genesis 12, that Jesus fulfills the promises when God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Matthew's saying, this, this is the guy. He's the one. And then also, son of David, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made 1,000 years later, you know, after, after Abraham, all the way in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There, in 2 Samuel, God is, is talking specifically about Solomon, David's son, but ultimately about Jesus, when, when God says to David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now to us... You know, you might hear that, and it's like, well, great, okay, I guess he can sit on this throne. I mean, who, like, why do, we, why do we really care, right? But for the first century Jews, right, who are living in colonized Rome, essentially, they're in their, their land with, with a kingship that's been dead for centuries, any rumors of a new king, I mean, this, this is huge for them. Everything hinges upon this for them. And even, even more than that, if, if this is true, if this is Jesus... And that means that God, God fulfills even outdated promises, ones that seem long, long expired. So that's, that's essentially verse, verse 1. Now, now, peek at verse 17 really quick here. 
Because if you're listening, maybe that just sounds weird to you. It's, like, it's the three sets of 14, right? Matthew's kind of summary of it. Like, what? Like, who? Why? Is that a, you know, what are you doing, Matthew? Um, especially, like, it's hard to even know how those numbers completely add up, right? There's some debate on how, how they're being counted. Um, and really, honestly, even if you're just, like, slightly good at math um, or even kind of familiar with the Old Testament, you know that there's actually, there's got to be a lot more generations left out. But there's no way that from Abraham to Jesus, there's 42 generations. It's not, it's not possible, frankly. And, I mean, it's obvious because, I mean, Matthew... Matthew knows this. Matthew's writing to people who know this. That he's, he's left out like whole sections of kings, right, in this genealogy. That's, that's okay. These are the 42 that Matthew wants us to, to know, to understand. And the word that it says father, it can just as easily be translated ancestor, okay? And so it's, it's, not, it's not a big deal. It was an intentional thing. It was common, common in genealogies for do, to do this. But there's still the question, like, what's the big deal with the 14, right? Well, a couple of things. And scholars talk a lot about this. There's I mean, just one, simply, it's easier to memorize that way, um, which I know sounds awful, right, to sit down and memorize. But we're talking a, a world without a whole lot of paper, so a lot of people memorized it. So 14, 14, 14, you can always, oh, I'm forgetting somebody, who is, you know, kind of thing. So memoriz- memorization. But still, why 14, right? There's, there's got to be a reason. Well, I know this, this is bizarre, uh, but most scholars agree uh, that the significance of the number 14 is that 14 is the numerical value of the Hebrew word David. That Matthew, he, he's just being super thorough. He doesn't want us to miss. This is David's son. If anything else, this, this is him. That, that, that David is, or Jesus is, is heir to the very throne of God, the fulfillment of every promise God has ever made. Jesus is king. But as we dig a little deeper, it really is of one ugly kingdom. In fact, if, if I were to like make up a story about the Son of God, our Savior, I mean, there's a whole lot of names here I, I would have left off, honestly. I mean, nobody makes up a family history like this, and yet Matthew goes out of his way. We'll see this. He goes out of his way dragging skeleton after skeleton right out of God's closet for us all to see. So here we go. We're going to go through all of them. Um, so either like fasten your seatbelt or sneak out and leave, okay? Because uh, this is happening. Let's, let's do this, all right? Abraham. He's the first guy on here. We've talked about Abraham, and, and you maybe are familiar a little bit with Abraham, depending on, on how much time you've spent in, in a religious community or, or a church. Uh, and Abraham, I mean, he's generally considered a faithful individual at the beginning of this, this new thing that God is, is doing. And yet, if you read his story, he's also, he's, he's a liar, very clearly. Uh, he's not always faithful. In fact, sometimes far from it. But even more than that, he and his wife, they're just unable to have kids. It's not a great way to start a family, right? And yet, even so... They give birth to Isaac, whose name was a constant reminder that his parents had laughed at God. Also unable to have kids. But he gives birth, his wife gives birth to, to Jacob. Now, Jacob's a real swindler, a cheat, a deceiver. I mean, he's just kind of a mess, quite honestly. That's, that's who Jacob is. Also, also unable to have kids might be picking up a little bit of a theme there. The first three families have this against them. And yet, even so, Jacob and his, his wives, 
wives are, are able to produce enough sons for the entire, like, 12 tribes of Israel. That's what Matthew means when he says Judah and his brothers. And Judah, you know, he's mentioned because that's, that's where the line goes, but it's, it's the whole family comes out of, of these, these folks. And, and Judah is, is like the initial place where there's a, a kingly line, right? Uh, it talks about this in, in Genesis, that a king will come out of Judah's line, but Judah himself... I mean, who does he get pregnant? Tamar. Well, that's interesting. Why does he say Tamar there? Now, what's really interesting, and this is why I'm convinced Matthew's doing this, showing us how ugly this family gets, uh, is that there are, there are only four women mentioned in this genealogy. Only four. And it's pretty unlikely in a patriarchal society to list any women. Right? You, just didn't, you didn't have to do that, and you're trying to memorize these names. And so you'd, you'd, in a patriarchal society, I'm not saying that's the way it should be. It's just the way it was, right? Um, and so they remembered the, the family line through the men. And if you were to include a woman, which happened occasionally in the historical records, but it was always like the heroines of the family, right? Uh, it was, it was the, the Rachels and the Sarahs and the, you know, the, the Rebeccas, the, the, the heroes. But these four women... Only four he mentions, all four of, of whom are foreigners, first of all. So they don't, they don't even belong in this family, historically, culturally. They have no place there. Four foreigners, all of whom are deeply associated with pretty heinous sexual sin. All of them. Which I just, I find it interesting because I have a hunch that Mary was accused of sexual sin her entire life, wasn't she? I mean, really, Mary? Virgin birth, really, really, right? And so these four women are mentioned. And, but who's, who's Tamar? Okay, so here's what happened. Uh, Judah was already married, not to Tamar. Uh, and Judah had three sons. His son, one of them, marries Tamar. Following that, this is Judah's daughter-in-law. But her husband, Judah's son, dies. And nobody wants her. I mean, she's, again, she's a Canaanite, right? She's an outcast. And so for them, there's, there are clear lines that she does not belong. And, and frankly, to them and the way they treat her, I mean, this story is pretty long. You can, you can read about it. Uh, she's trash to them. And so they essentially leave her destitute. And the last thing they want is for anyone to produce an heir in their family line through her. And they, they go to pretty extreme measures to make sure it happens. Again, you can read it. I won't fill you in on the... On the Details. Um, he wants nothing to do with them. And Judah wants nothing to do with her. There are a few options for a woman several thousand years ago who's a widow. And she takes one of the clearest options before her and she disguises herself like a prostitute. And she waits for her father-in-law to solicit her. Which he does. And she gives birth to twins. Perez and Zara, which means that in the line of Jesus, right, that Jesus is an eventual byproduct of both incest and solicitation. I mean, the family tree doesn't always spread out quite like you wish it would, right? And Tamar is forced as a single mom to raise these unwanted boys. That's the first woman that's mentioned. 
So after, after Perez, we have Hezron. Then there's, there's Ram. They're basically nobodies. We don't know anything about them. Aminadab, uh, he's uh, likely one of the, one of the members of like, the rebellion against Moses in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right? Most likely he fits into to that category, that time period. Then there's, there's Nashon. He's some kind of a, a leader followed by another nobody, Salmon. Now, Boaz is interesting. Who's Boaz's mom? Rahab. Who's she? It's a little interesting here. Because again, there's only one reason Matthew includes her name. He doesn't have to, right? Only one reason. It's shock value. Because everybody knew who Rahab was. And I, I mean, she's, she's an unlikely candidate to be invited to any of the birthday parties, right? Any family graduations or, or events. But they all knew who she was, just like Tamar. So Rahab, I mean, she's a woman, which again, in that culture, that's strike one. She's a Canaanite. So it comes from a, a pagan, idolatrous background. That's, that's strike two. Prostitute? Strike three. She's a political refugee, okay? So I guess maybe strike four, right? Uh, she, she's an individual uh, woman. There's a story of uh, kind of the, the people of, of God entering into the promised land, and the, the walls of Jericho, right? And the spies and all of this stuff. But, but Rahab is one who helps the spies, and so she's saved. And she, she's not simply welcomed in as a political refugee into the, 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 the family, like into the people. Not just that, but actually makes her way into this line, into the family of kings. This is, this is one interesting family reunion, isn't it? Well, after that, right, then comes Obed by Ruth, another, another foreigner. And what's her story? Ugh. I mean, she herself is considered to be a woman of, of noble, noble character, at least compared to, to Rahab and Tamar. But her people, Ruth was a Moabite. Which in that day, culturally, ethnically, I mean, that's like as bad as it, that's, do you know how the Moabites got started? You, you got to kind of do like a, a little bit of a, a flashback in the, in the story here. Um, back with Abraham. Abraham had this nephew named Lot. So Abraham, you know, he's the first guy that we mentioned. His nephew, Lot. One night, Lot gets super drunk. Um, I mean, essentially, his own daughters slip him a roofie uh, and then have their way with their dad and give birth to the Moabites. They were so despised by the Israelites that they weren't allowed anywhere near the temple to the 10th generation, right? It was like that explicit, like, you, this, no way. There's no way Ruth belongs, but yet here she is. The mother of Jesse, the father of David the king. So that's the first 14. The next 14 are all kings. And maybe, maybe at this point, well, I mean, there, at least there's David, right? If, you, if you're familiar with the story at all, I mean, David is like, he's the guy. He's the pinnacle of, of all of it for, for Old Testament history. I mean, this is David and Goliath, David. It's David, man after God's own heart, David. But what is the one thing Matthew points out about King David? Only one. Son Solomon. Well, he's got to say that's a genealogy. By the wife of Uriah. There's other ways he could have said it, right? He could have said, well, by Bathsheba, and let us kind of fill in the blank ourselves. But he's, he's explicit here. 
the line continues through somebody else's wife. Uriah the, the Hittite, another, another foreigner, who David has murdered in cold blood to hide his shame. So as the story goes, David saw Bathsheba. He wanted Bathsheba. He's king, right? Kings get what they want. And so he, he takes her. And there's, there's a lot of debate whether, whether Bathsheba had any say in the matter at all. This is as likely rape as it is adultery. But she gets pregnant. And rather than owning his shame, David sends his own loyal soldier. And man, is he loyal. Out to battle in a situation in which he will definitely not make it home. Essentially, he murders, he murders him. All so that David can, you know, save face in front of the people. Well, that child dies in infancy. But David marries Bathsheba, and they eventually have another child named Solomon. And Solomon is not, he's not the likely heir. He's not the oldest, right? That's how it would go. The oldest male is the heir. But no, he's just, frankly, he's just, he's David's favorite. He's a child of his own lust and violence. And the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Because Solomon, yeah, he's, he's wise. He's known for his wisdom. At least at the start. But he ends up with 700 wives and 300 sex slaves. And he begins the process of trading out Yahweh, the true God. Israel's God, our God, for all the pagan deities around them. It actually goes downhill from here. Like, really? This is the high point. I mean, I, I mean that, right? David and Solomon, that's, that's the pinnacle. This is, this is the moment for them. It is actually going to get worse because then Solomon's son is, is, is Rehoboam. And as a result of Rehoboam's greed and power-hungry, you know, leader, just terrible, Right? He leads the nation in anarchy and actually fractures it in two. And so if you think about it, right, David, God made promises to David for a kingdom that would last. We've had David, Solomon, and it's already shattered. I mean, there's a remnant of the kingdom that continues for several more generations, but it's not what it once was. It's not what it should have been. It's, not, it's certainly not what God had, had, had promised or seemed to be what God had promised in those, those moments as it fractures in two. And Rehoboam really trades Yahweh for all the other pagan gods. And the people begin to worship all of these other gods as well. Abijah follows suit. Uh, Asaph and Jehoshaphat, they're, they're kind of a couple of bright spots. And you've got Joram. Uh, Joram executes his six brothers so he can maintain power, right? I guess that's just kind of what you do. Um, Uzziah and Jotham, they're not the worst, but nothing to write home about either. Ahaz is pretty terrible. Hezekiah, he's actually uh, pretty good. Hezekiah's son is this guy named Manasseh. And you really just, you can't get worse than Manasseh. I mean, finding out that Manasseh is in your family tree would be a little bit like finding out that your grandpa was Hitler. I mean, that's, that's essentially who Manasseh was. An ancient form of this terrible dictator who destroyed. I mean, he does everything evil. He worships every god but Yahweh. He desecrates the temple, which was kind of a big deal for them. Uh, he, he, so much so, he, like, he sacrifices his own children in the fires to their, their pagan gods, watches them, them die in pagan worship to these other deities. In fact, in fact it says at one point that, that Manessa 
takes you know, the city of Jerusalem. This is the capital city. This is where the temple is. This is where God sort of seems to, to dwell among his people. That, that Manasseh fills Jerusalem from one end of the city all the way to the other end of the city with the blood of the innocent. And he leads God's people into so much sin and shame. By the time Manasseh is done with God's people, God is essentially done with them. And he promised exile is coming, suffering and pain, because you, you've left me, you've forsaken me. But not, not, quite, not quite yet. A couple more kings. Amos is wicked. Josiah is good. And then the wicked king, Jeconiah, is the end of David's royal line. The last king to sit on Israel's throne. Like, still, right? As the people are shipped off into Babylon, taken over by a harsh and brutal people and enslaved. Another 14. Now, some of you, especially you kids, you're starting to panic because it's like you're doing the math and like 14 more to go. You've got to be kidding me. Sorry. I promise this will be a little bit faster, okay? Because we just don't know much about these folks. So as the last 14, Jeconiah, he gets another nod as the, as the final king in the beginning of the exile. Shealtiel, uh, whose only claim to fame is that he's the son of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, I mean, he, Zerubbabel tastes again the, the promises of God. And you think for a moment it's, it's here. So he's, he's up in, in the north in Babylon. And he and a, a handful of God's faithful people are actually allowed back into Israel. And he rebuilds the temple, the, the place for, for God's presence to dwell. And then, and then comes silence. For 400 years, Silence. a long time to wait for God to do something to say something to show that he's still with them and during, during all that time we have Abiud and Eliakim and Azor and Zadok and Akim and Eliud and Eleazar Mathen and Jacob just a bunch of nobodies we don't know anything about them unimportant otherwise forgotten remembered only for this they survived the silence and they are evidence that even in the silence God's promise couldn't be stopped and then when the time was just right Joseph the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born who was called Christ one big fat ugly kingdom good luck Messiah So what? Just a long long list of names and a bunch of seemingly random stories, right? Who cares? Like, why does this even, why does this matter to us so many centuries later? What Matthew's doing here, we can't miss it, right? Because he's he's writing this down, this history down, so that people would believe and come to to trust this this Messiah, this this Jesus. And so when we hear this this list and any of these stories, really, Matthew doesn't want us just to see that Jesus is is a king or even their king. He wants us to declare him our king. Um, yours, yours and mine. And so if there if there's any truth in this story, this ugly family portrait. What gives him the right to be my king? That's, that's the question we have to wrestle with. 
And so if you're, if you're here this morning um, and, and you're, you're not a, a Christian, let me just say we're, we are so glad you're here. Uh, we want to be a church, a place where you can come and ask questions, where you can bring your friends who don't know Jesus and, and explore that with us and, and try to figure out a little bit more. And fr- frankly, I mean, this is, I mean, if you, if you really want to take Jesus seriously, at least, at least find out who he is or who he claimed to be, um, now's a great time to be a part of Christ's community because uh, we're at the beginning of Matthew and we're going to be in here for a while. And so you'll at least see from one of the original source documents who we believe um, and who we center ourselves around. Um, but at, at the very least, I hope, you, I hope you give Jesus a fair trial um, and recognize that at least here in the, in the genealogy, right? And you may not you know, believe this story, and I, I totally get that, right? It seems completely, yeah, just ridiculous, right? It's, it's hard to get our minds around. And yet at least recognize that Matthew believes that it's true. And Matthew is doing his best to actually root this story in real history with real names and real people and real places, really, truly on, on planet Earth. That, you may disagree with Matthew, but that you've got to at least see, that's his starting point. That's where he begins for us. And if you are a believer, is he really your king? Like of everything. Matthew thinks he should be, and there's, there's three reasons from the genealogy that, that we see. I'll be quick here, but three sort of reflections as we think through. And for me, i got to tell you, this is, these are three reasons, um, even from something as hard as a genealogy, right, that keep me personally coming back to Jesus. The time and time again that make me think, yes, he, he is the one I want to give my life to. He's the one I want to be my king. And three, three things here. First, first, Jesus understands the mess. I love that about Jesus. He knows what it's like to be a real person with with brokenness and pain, heartache and family shame. No other so-called God can say that. And even though Jesus was without sin, he knows what it's like to have a past. We all have skeletons. Individually, personally, collectively, as people, families, as, as whole groups. Skeletons that continue to hurt us or push us down or continue to hurt others and push them down. But if, if God can use this to bring about the Son of God, our Savior, what can't he use in your life and mine? Why not let him be king of the mess? Second, consider this. Jesus really is for all. You just can't miss it. Like, everybody's here, right? Everybody's in this list. And a whole bunch of people that you wouldn't necessarily expect or maybe even necessarily want, but they're, they're here. He really, no other God or religion or worldview or ideology. I mean, think about that. Just practice. What other one fits that level of inclusivity, welcomes anyone? Rich, poor, educated, uneducated, right? The, the ones who seem to have their stuff together, the ones who, whose lives are an absolute mess, right? The, the ones, right, who, you know, have... have come from typical families, as well as like single-parent homes and, and those who, who are unable, the, the loved and the popular, as well as the discarded and the despised, the Israelites, right, who had this sort of in, and yet also this whole host of foreigners and immigrants and refugees and the, the ethnically unclean, they're all there. Not to mention all the sinners. Liars, cheats, idol worshipers, murderers, dictators, the sexually immoral. I mean, has Matthew left anybody out? I mean, if you sit here this morning, you think, I don't fit, right? I've done too much. I've made too many mistakes. I, I don't belong. I, I, I'm a, if you feel that way, this list is such clear evidence that God even welcomes all of us, even welcomes me. I mean, Kelly and I, 
Uh, we've been recently watching uh, the new show, The Man in the High Castle. Uh, it's sort of a, a reimagining of life uh, if the Nazis had won World, II, World War II. It's kind of bleak, as you can imagine. Um, it's like 20, 20 years after World War II, and, and the vision for reality that they sort of portray, it's, it's all just vanilla. Uh, because anybody who's unwanted, right, or un, they've all been either exterminated or enslaved. And so everybody looks the same, acts the same, talks the same, holds the same values. It's all just completely uniform. It's a, it's a very, very uniform, but very brutal vision for reality. But God's vision for his planet could not be more different. That he, he wants everyone. Even, even the people that you are convinced, man, really them? And you know who those people are in your life. Yeah, even them. God, God wants them. Jesus came for them, and he came for me, and he came, he came for you. Why not, let, why not let him define what his kingdom ought to look like, rather than our own sort of narrow, simplistic, and often culturally defined uh, visions of, of that kingdom? Finally, so he's, he's a king who understands. He's a king really, truly for all. And he's a king who saves sinners. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that in the genealogy passage, um, and yet he has indeed shown us, hasn't he? That Jesus is a king from sinners, for sinners. He's the only king who came to die. Came to, to be broken for our sin and to resurrect, to come back to life for, for our life and for our wholeness. King of, of one ugly kingdom. And he could have been ashamed of his ancestors or us. And yet he comes to rescue. I mean, even, even to die for them, right? As, as well as us. And he embraces the world with all of its mess but he never leaves us there. I mean, even you think about those stories, right? I mean, Abraham the liar, the often faithless, and yet God reaffirms his promise to him over and over and over again. And the fact that those first three families, they can't have kids, and yet God produces a nation out of them. He gives Jacob the liar a, a, a new name, a, a, new, a new identity, calls him Israel. He, he uses Judah's victimization and Tamar's desperation and Rahab's prostitution and, and Ruth's ethnic shame to bring about the Davidic dynasty. He even uses David's sins. And, and Solomon himself builds God his temple. Even Manasseh is given a chance to repent and to turn back away from his sins and to come back into this, this redeemed community. And Zerubbabel, right? He, he brings some of God's faithful people back home. I mean, even the nobodies are evidence that God's promise never dies. That even those who seem just obscure, maybe that's you, right? Maybe you feel like you're just insignificant. You just don't matter. Maybe you're not that big of a sinner. You just don't really feel like you count for anything. But they're here. And they find a place in God's family because this is, this is what he does. This is why he came. He redeems the fatherless, the deceivers, the sexually immoral. He gives hope to the barren, uh, to the, the, the single, the... The single moms, right? It's, 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 it's what he does for the immigrant, the refugee, the, the outcast. There are no nobodies. There are no throwaways in God's kingdom. Which means there's no mistake too big for God to handle. No past so painful he cannot heal. Uh, no relationship too far gone he can't mend. No people we cannot welcome and no sin too big for him to forgive. And Matthew wants us to see it on page one of his gospel. That's why it's called good news. People, Jesus is king. Jesus is king of one ugly kingdom. 
but he's making us beautiful. Let's pray.